Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. This is a podcast for you if you're involved in education, either as a parent, student, educator, school leader, and you're interested in reinventing what it is we offer our next generations for their starter kit to get ready for the world around them. I'm Rob McLeod. Today, at least for now, not joined by co-host Brendan O'Leary. He'll chime in a little bit later. We're just coming off of our summer break. We've been off for the last six, seven weeks now, regrouping, recalibrating, and getting ready for another season of the show. If you've been with us before, you know that we look at the way that different value systems impact what school is, how it presents itself across eight different aspects in particular. Um, If you are new to us and you haven't checked out our material before, before you listen further here today, I'd actually recommend maybe going back to episode 50. Uh, This is an episode we released back at uh, the end of May, start of June, and uh, episode 50 is titled Start Here 2.0, A Map for Reinventing Education. There we lay out the template, the map, the, uh, the kind of system or structure that Brennan and I have developed to look at school change. Although today in conversation, that map isn't necessarily so explicit. You can certainly enjoy the chat that's coming with Brad Kirshner, even if you haven't checked that out. But if you are new to us, I would recommend checking out episode 50. There we kind of give you the crash course in the terminology and I guess perspective that we use here on the show to look at education through. So last season, we looked at the traditional value, the value, the kind of school that organizes itself around the value of security. And uh, in our next 10 to 12 episodes this season, we're going to look at the next value that is the uh, mainstream school, the value of opportunity. And in our wrap-up last season, and after releasing episode 50 of Start Here 2.0, We sent this episode around to a lot of educational leaders who both Brennan and I really respect. And uh, one of them was Brad Kirshner, an educator and uh, educational theorist, perhaps is a a good word, a very heartfelt man in education whose work I personally really respect and appreciate and have been influenced by. And not only was Brad kind enough to give us the time to listen to our episode, but uh, he also began a conversation with Brennan and I on uh, Messenger back and forth, and we shared some ideas and decided to actually get together and record an episode of reflections of what he took from our presentation in episode 50, but also for him to kind of bring in some perspectives that perhaps we hadn't been including, and also some great inquiry questions for Brennan and I to dig in deeper to, to I think uh, further mature and flesh out our approach to how we look at a school, how we conceptualize what a school is, and um, I guess what's most impactful for helping that school to flourish, develop, and to serve in our modern context. Um, I'm a really big fan of Brad's work. I know he has a lot of new projects that are coming. Um, If you want to explore some more of his work, I personally would recommend his channel on YouTube. He has, I think, 12 or 13 different videos and um, most of them are talks that he's given with uh, very good slide presentations. One I would recommend is uh, his one titled Cognitive Complexity, Emergent Values, and Human Development. If you search Dr. Brad Kirshner on YouTube, you will find his channel and his videos there. 
So without further ado, here is the conversation that I had with Brad. And after the conversation, Brendan and I will chime in with some of our reflections and the takeaways that we got from our talk with Brad. Enjoy this conversation here on Reinventing Education with Dr. Brad Kirshner. Yeah, there were two big themes that jumped out for Brendan and I. One was that idea of the embodying it. And I really liked your idea of like a post-progressive value, being able to speak the truth um, across value systems and not just play language games or not just have a fixed perhaps mindset of the values of different groups. Going back to what you just said about how do you help people to be seen and, and cared for and all that. Um, and then the, the second big thing that was coming back for Brendan and I was um, just that idea of like the developmental context. And I think we kind of just shared that idea of like, Brendan and I, we've maybe come to our work much more from the school centric thing and the values and kind of like, okay, define your stuff and then grow from there. And I don't quite have the opposite of the way I would characterize what you're saying, but it almost felt to some degree like you were kind of saying like, no, 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 like use the like global environmental influence around you as well. Don't start from a isolated mm-hmm. thing and then try to work back out or something like that. So yeah. as long as we hit those two themes, those are the, kind of the things I'd really be curious to hear your thinking on. And then anything else is cherries on top of that. So yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's really key. And the um, yeah, the theme that was really coming up for me is just how to be in relationship with people and as we and and the context of different kinds of conversations so even just as we get into conversations like this as we're talking about development as we're talking about stages as we're talking about different perspectives realizing that that's one kind of conversation and then that's one kind of enactment of the truth and validity and value of having a developmental perspective and working that out with people who also are thinking about that and able to see that is really valuable and meaningful. But what became clear for me more and more as I'm thinking about in the context of having a conversation like that, thinking about a different context, right, of the very different context of working in a school with people where I wouldn't actually say any of the things that I'm saying to you, right? It's, so it's really about visualizing that shift and embodying that shift and then talking about what constitutes that shift which is very different than talking about the stages themselves right so it's like laying out the stages of traditional mainstream progressive and then thinking about what it means to be post-progressive like that should naturally lead to then shifting into a different language game of talking about what does it actually look like to be in relationship with people regardless of where they're at and more and more like also I think the value of these kinds of conversations of talking about stages and talking about dialectical development talking about the whole sort of spectrum of perspective taking that people can take part of the value of having those kinds of conversations is that the more fluid that that becomes the more that sort of becomes your operating system the more that actually in relationship with people it fades away right? It actually fades to the background and it's just there. And then it's informing how you relate to people. So it, it seems to me like a, perhaps 
an important stage for many. I'm not sure if it's necessary to really get into the weeds of it for everyone to be able to embody it. But I think it's valuable because for me, I feel like I've spent so much time reading and thinking and talking about stages of development and different perspectives that more and more I'm able to sort of lean into a maturity of not talking about it anymore, right? But then we can still talk about what that looks like, right? And now it's like the meta. So now it's a meta conversation about, okay, you've got the stages and structures, have a conversation about that. Then there's the conversation about making the distinction between that and really working with people. And then there's really working with people and trying to describe that. So there's just all these different layers. And yeah. as we go into these conversations, those are the kinds of distinctions that, that end up being really meaningful for me. Yeah, it almost feels like a cycle of that like conscious or unconscious incompetence into conscious incompetence into conscious competence into unconscious competence. I think I messed up the order of those, but just that idea of like when you can put all the language and you can like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this because I, this is my goal. This is my stage. This is where I think they're at. Here's where I've kind of assessed where this needs to be at. Like, I think sometimes our minds get us somewhere first before like our bodies and hearts show up on the scene. So it's kind of like, oh, I need to be able to like think this through before I can let it sink into my heart. I'm curious, though, if you could share, like, I don't know if like a case example even does this justice, but if you can think of something where you, an example maybe you could share with me of like, where you felt that you really embodied this post-progressive perspective within a school context. Yeah. Well, in some ways, I feel like I'm just trying to all the time and every every interaction I have is sort of a manifestation of the intention. So for instance, just thinking about the different contexts I've been in, there's sort of like the academic context and then how do you relate to professors of education and people who are thinking about education if there's a really strong sort of center of gravity of progressive thinking and like postmodern thinking, right? What are the questions to ask in the context of a class where you can sort of push against that a little bit and start of poke holes in the postmodern sort of narrative, right? So that's one context I feel like I've been in. And then another one I've worked in um, as a researcher and as a school leader in public Catholic charter schools, right? And very traditional mainstream approaches to education, a very test-centered orientation, and having to sort of bite the bullet to some extent and realize the water that you're swimming in. And you can't just, you can't eradicate the whole system, you can't change the water that you're swimming in. So there's no point in going into a context like that and just giving speeches about how bad standardized testing is. Um, but then, for, so for there, like in that context, the, the entry point for me was often just trying to bring it back to the humanity of children and things like creativity, things like the qualitative nature of learning, qualitative assessment, right? So one way that I tried to bring together the academic with the more traditional mainstream education is through qualitative research, right? Because even that opens it up where it's like de-emphasizing quantitative reduction of educational value, right? So this is a good thing to maybe unpack a little bit. So when I look at traditional and mainstream education, I see an infrastructure of quantitative reduction of educational value, right? We have reduced what education means literally to a number or a test score or a grade. And then through that, we're trying to manipulate that outcome 
and that affects the process, right? So the quality of education has been totally transformed by a focus on the quantified output. So in my work with people in that context, I would keep trying to bring it back to the qualitative and the qualitative questions, like what's the actual experience of the students, right? What about creativity? What about teacher creativity? What about autonomy, right? What about these sort of, and these are values that cut through the structures, right? So you can talk about creativity, freedom, autonomy, you know, at, with someone who has a traditional sort of meme complex structure or somebody who has a mainstream sort of meme complex or structure. Like those are values that sort of cut through that, but you have to keep coming back to those ground values of like, what about autonomy? What about creativity? What about freedom? What about, what about deep questioning, right? What about people sort of aligning their purpose with the process of education they're engaging? What about internal motivation versus all the research that says external motivation doesn't work, right? So then if you're in a mainstream context, you can draw on research as much as possible, right? Because that might be a context that buys in to the sort of science of research. So in a mainstream context, trying to point out, well, where, where practice butts heads with research is really important, right? Whereas in a traditional context, it might be more where practice is butting heads with some core value, right? So keep coming back to whatever core values or principles people do buy into, because the reality of social life is that there's tons of contradictions everywhere, right? It's actually not hard to find contradictions between theory and practice in any context you go, and there's going to be tons of contradictions because people aren't living their values because they're living in contexts where they're totally impinged upon from the outside, people telling them what to do and forcing them to do things in a certain way. There's no way that they're going to be able to actually live their values in that kind of context. So, that, so that's really interesting that? there. I, I, yeah. That idea that the embodied action, I guess, from anybody, you may be seeing action from a different value system, even though it's alien to the one the person actually holds. And therefore you get like a one layer removed of interacting with what really matters to this person because you're kind of interacting with them through them trying to act or uphold something that isn't really like connected to their core. So like any school I've seen is some combination of at least all three of the values that we've kind of laid out on our podcast. I've never seen a school where like, it's 100% traditional staff or 100% mainstream or 100% progressive. So mm -hmm. you, you gave some hints there. What, what do you do? Do you have an approach for where like those circles don't overlap? So the creativity, I totally get. I can see how that you can use that to speak across different value systems, the autonomy, those kinds of things. Have, have you run into those areas, though, where... The, there isn't that flow with things and there are just sort of like people doubling down on, on maybe certain issues over yeah. others. Yeah, definitely. And actually standardized testing and even more broadly than that grades is a great example. I would say a lot of traditional and mainstream educators do buy in to um, standardized testing and especially the value of grades for many people. It's sort of hard to let go of this notion of, of grading as a good, and so there's like my own thoughts about that are that those things are not necessarily inherent 
or necessary within a structure of thought. So it's not like you have to buy into standardized testing as a natural part of going through a traditional or mainstream view. I, I don't think that. I think that it's actually more of it's more a part of a cultural code, and it's actually almost a form of malware in a cultural code, right? So this is where separating separating code from complexity is important. Because on one hand, you're engaging with people and trying to get a sense of what's the complexity of the structure of sense making they're using to sort of make sense of their reality and about education. And then there's the words and language and ideas they're using, which buy into some sort of code or some sort of meme complex of ideas that they have inherited from whatever their subculture is, right? Because nobody creates language in a vacuum. We're all part, we're all impinged upon by the world. So untangling that for myself is helpful. So I might be talking to somebody who is coming from a more traditional complexity, but has bought into the cultural code of testing and grades, um, which would be a slightly different relationship than somebody who's actually maybe very mainstream and has a maybe more um, just, you know, notions of meritocracy and success and maybe research, right? So for that person, maybe talking about the research behind it would be more helpful. Whereas for the other person, just talking about it at like a value level or looking at what it does to children might be different. But I'm not implying that necessarily, um, it's, it's not necessarily about changing people's minds in a short amount of time, right, either. Because definitely it's like, I'm, I would say, if, I, if I'm talking to 10 different educators who really are deeply bought into the idea that grades and ranking is really important in order to keep up the merit, the, the, the values of the meritocracy um, in an educational landscape, um, I'm not necessarily planning on changing their mind. So, so that's just another tension to of humility is like you do what you can and you're always seeking understanding in relationship with people. And it's always about like whatever relationship I'm gonna have in a school like that, primary is the relationship and secondary is the sort of mimetic or perspective difference, right? And I always wanna hold that difference in the context of a healthy relationship. But I'm aware of the difference, right? So I have a different view of our difference of perspective than they have. And for me, embodying the post-progressive view means I'm holding all that in the background while trying to have a healthy relationship with this person and these people, while also whatever my position is, holding as much as I can to post-progressive values and trying to push it in that direction. So if I'm a school leader and I'm referring to teachers who buy in, right, say to standardized testing, and I'm actually a school leader who's trying to change it, I might have more power in that situation to sort of move things in a positive direction, even if they disagree. Where if it's that flip, which is often the case, it's often in many schools I've seen an administrator who's trying to toe the line and justify standardized testing and maybe progressive or post-progressive teachers who don't agree with it and actually think they can see how the standardized tests are killing their kids and killing their teaching. It's harder because the power structure is different there too. Right? So that's another layer we have to bring in is in the context of a relationship, what are the power dynamics and who actually is going to get the last word and what, how healthy really is the conversational culture of the school so that people can really flesh these things out. Or is it a culture where basically the administration is just saying this is the way it is and then you have disgruntled teachers. So for me, that's really important too because part of the post-progressive insight too is seeing 
um, it's actually disembedding from language and concepts and content a little bit and actually being more present in relationship because you see more the construction of these ideas, like because you can actually see and objectify traditional mainstream and progressive, like you have a healthy distance between your context of awareness and all of that potential content, right? Whereas for most people, they're sort of in a structure and they're looking through it and they're identified with it. So that's really a key distinction to make is it's actually part of the post-progressive um, experience is being less identified with any particular content of thought because it's actually bleeding into becoming more construct aware, uh, what Terry O'Fallon calls meta aware, right? Like actually being aware that you are constructing a reality as you sort of fit your thoughts into a narrative. So the more aware you are of that, the more you don't identify with any particular position. So it's not like, oh, I'm now identified with this post-progressive structure and I'm trying to just prove to everybody else that that's right. That's what the postmodern progressive does, right? The postmodern progressive is, oh, I'm identified with this liberal progressive value structure and everyone else is wrong and probably ignorant and stupid and, un and uneducated. And I need to sort of argue with them or convince them that liberal progressive values are, are better. Um, whereas being post-progressive means you actually do that less and you move back into uh, uh, valuing the relationship and valuing the process more than valuing the content of any particular thought, even if it's post-progressive thought. Yeah, I like that idea of valuing the relationship and valuing the process. <sighs> First of all, yeah, I just, yeah. I hope. Well, I just want to say like the, the, those themselves are good examples of meta values. Like those are meta values that cut through every structure. Like every structure can understand why it's important to value relationships. You can, a traditional mainstream progressive, if you say let's focus on relationships, that resonates with everybody, right? So that's a good example of it's not some new idea that you're trying to convince people of. It's actually it's it's coming back to really primary ground values that cut through all the structures and help people loosen up their mistaken identity with the content of whatever their thought structure is. Ah, there are four different threads I want to follow here. <laughs> One, I'm just going to try and be nitpicky on what you just said there before shifting out of this, because I think I want to expand on this idea of relationship and process more too. Um, discussing that you want to focus on relationship across the values that totally cuts across. Remembering a conversation that I had last year with a few teachers, one arguably more at a traditional value, one more at mainstream, one more at a progressive. What I noticed though was the conflict began when we, when at least I, sitting back a little bit, could realize that all three had very different ideas about what relationship with students meant. Mm. So traditional, it was like, yeah, as long as they're doing everything I'm telling them to do, we have a great relationship. That was the criteria. The mainstream, it was a bit more of like, as long as they see that I'm on their side, and no matter what we're doing, it's in their best interest, relationships going well. And the progressive was sort of like, who am I in this? Like, 
the relationship is when I'm out of the way as much as possible and nurturing what's coming forth from this kid. And the, it was like the conversation, the longer it went on, it was like, it felt like everyone started in the same lane. And then the longer it went on, it was sort of like those three values separated further from each other. And it was sort of like, you don't know what relationship is. Like my definition is. So yeah. Um, maybe this piggybacks to the one other thread I wanted to discuss with you. Um, I hope I get you <laughs> or someone very like you as a head of school to like play with this kind of post-progressive um, way of being. But what happens when you leave the room? What happens when you leave a school? How much of it is being influenced by your influence? And how much of it are there like deep roots of a post-progressive way of being taking mm -hmm. root in that culture, in those relationships that would continue to grow as a forest mm -hmm. when you leave the room, when you leave the school, when the next head of whatever comes in, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, great questions. I mean, the first one really brings us to one of the problems of politics, which is sort of having to address a general audience and speaking to many different views at once. And what you end up with there is very watered down, like, low, like lowest common denominator type of logic. But I feel like ideally in that situation, if you're in a conversation where multiple sort of views are coming out, the easier said than done is everything. But ideally, you're trying to um, acknowledge and honor the partial truths of each one and then create some container or some meta value that can hold them all, right? And, or maybe even if appropriate, showing the flip side of each one. Like, I, like I'm really hearing you here. I understand the progressive educator. You're really trying to empower your students, having this more coach-like role. That really, like, I'm totally hearing that because it's so important to, to have them be cultivating their autonomy and their and, and, and knowing that when they're engaged with what they're doing and when they have choice over what they're doing, they're much more likely to actually be learning. That's really important. The flip side of that, though, is that we all need mentors. We all need guidance. And we can't lose sight of this healthy notion of teacherly authority and like actually the teacher having something of value and having a healthy hierarchy, right? Hierarchy is kind of a bad word in that progressive context. But that is the really other side of that coin that needs to be felt into also. So it's like acknowledging and then thinking about what's the flip side, right? And like same for the others, if you're, if you're valuing, um, say you have a teacher who's really focused on law and order and keeping the classroom quiet and not chaotic, like that's really important. It is a chaotic classroom, nobody's learning. But then the flip side of it is actually anticipated by the progressive educator, right? So it's seeing how these things are in relationship so even in the act of talking about it that way, you're actually also modeling sort of both and thinking. And that ultimately is the answer to the second question of, you know, it's not, again, it's not about, say, three or four of us are in a conversation and I'm able to provide the answer and the, like the right answer and the content that is going to help you all and tell you what to do. It's more about modeling the process right like how do we talk here at this school about these things and how do you sort of get that to be a consistent pattern in the culture 
And again, it can come down to simple things like protocols for listening and speaking and sharing time. Like a lot of more progressive schools that I've worked at, even mainstream, kind of have, and for me, it always feels a little bit too rigid. Like when you have the sort of norms that everyone has to agree to at the beginning of the meeting, you know, like share the air and uh, be respectful and assume best intent, you know, things like that. And to me, it's, it feels sometimes too like, oh, this is what the authorities are telling us we have to believe in. But you have to find some way to cultivate those as norms in groups. And I think the more authentically you can really embody those norms in a really lived way and not in a mechanical way, like, okay, let's all repeat the norms for our meeting. But it's really like breathe life into them because you really see what, why those things are important and where it can help people to go so that you aren't just, again, like you're not providing the answers, you're actually modeling process. And really, in the context of education, that really is the key point to keep coming back to again and again and again and again is process, 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 process. And my last point on this, what about when you just hit one of those places where it's like, man, we got to agree to disagree here. Like, when someone's really hooked on like maybe what Bren and I would term like a bath water of their kind of like worldview where it's like, now, you know what I can, I see all of the positives of what you're talking about. I can see where you've got a piece that they don't have and that kind of thing. But what about when it does just come down to something where it's like, I am not in alignment with what you're saying. I, you know, maybe we can agree on the end, but we're not going to agree on the means to get to that end. Yeah. And I disagree okay. with your mean. How, yeah. how do you deal with those conflicts in a well, developmental I context? I think actually what's valuable is even just if you do that in a way that doesn't damage the relationship, then you're embodying that as being primary, right? The problem is, or one of the many problems is that when people get to that point, they no longer feel like they're in a positive relationship. Then like, there's so much emotionality involved and there's so much identity with your position that if you're, and again, power dynamics are relevant. So if you're a teacher, and you can't come to a place of agreement with your administrator, right? You could just end up working there for 20 years as a resentful educator who's then no longer the best teacher for your kids because you're never in a good emotional place and you just hate and resent the whole infrastructure of your educational system. That's not, that's not okay, right? A healthier response would be to as clearly and honestly as possible, tell your administrator, this is where I disagree with you. This is why. I'm not going to give up on this because it really matters to me. We need to continue this. I need to keep trying to look for ways to have this conversation, but drop it. At some point, drop it and continue trying to work with that person. And if you are actually the more mature human being in some way, even if you have a lower status, you're still holding that principle in that light of primary, they are a human. Primary, you're wanting to really understand all their pressure. Like, why are they saying what they're saying? and you don't lose that threat, right? And if the roles are reversed, you're an administrator and you're butting heads with the teacher and they're just not going along, you, have to, you might have to draw a line and say, look, this is what's happening. This is the way it is, this is why, okay? I'm happy to talk to this again in the future. We can keep revisiting this when it's relevant and helpful, but right now I'm feeling like we reached a point where it's not healthy and productive anymore. So I'm asking you to really just let, can we just pause, really reflect on this, if you have anything new to say or any more insights, maybe we can revisit it next week or something. But you have the power in that situation to say, look, this is the line. And then you have to be tuned into that person's response. Are they that disgruntled, resentful person who's not in a place to really be professional, right? Or 
have you been able to hold them in a way that they still feel heard, they feel respected, so that they actually have the potential of growth in the future? Because you can't force growth. You know, we can't force the growth of children. We can't force the growth of adults. And we can't, and again, we're so a big part of the things that you start to see when you really see these mental architectures is the degrees to which we're, we're so often locked into orientations of control and wanting things to be a certain way and a hyper-rationalization of, like, of control and having things be linear and make sense. And you really, you know, if you're going to be in education, you should realize that it's just not, it's not simple or clean like that. And growth and development just isn't. And we're not designing teachers or, or children. You know, we're, we're sort of helping to facilitate healthy emergence along a natural process that's ultimately unpredictable, right? So you accept that too. And then it's more fun too, because then it's like you're, you're, you're engaged in this open-ended process that is really unpredictable and you can't just plot a course. Like it's much more emergent and complex than that, right? So that's part of the worldview too. It's like part of the post-progressive worldview is a sense of complexity and nonlinear change and unpredictability and letting go of overly simple models for understanding human behavior at, at every level. So relationship matters. The way we are with each other matters. Accepting where we are at matters. We cannot force development. It's like, I feel like we could end the conversation here. It's like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Now I want to like, pull the rug out from underneath us because you asked Brendan and I a great question, which was mm-hmm. cool. So like your model kind of helps schools identify if they're a traditional mainstream or progressive school and then like helps them to become a healthier, wider, more vibrant, enhanced expression of that. And then you asked Brendan and I like, that's cool, but are any of those three value systems even relevant or helpful for someone who's showing up on earth at this time to get ready for life on the planet at this time? And I think between the three of us, it was kind of an agreement like, no, (laughs) those three aren't. So like I'm noticing the like tension of this larger theme between us of like, yeah, here's how you accept what is, And then we like also end the sentence with, and what is, is totally inadequate for the task of preparing people for life on the planet at this point. So we also have to like accept it, but like move way beyond it, possibly. And we can't force development. Yeah. 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 Thank you, brother, for naming that tension. It's a very real tension. That's it. And that's, that's the tension ultimately that you come to on any path when you go deep enough, whether it's philosophy or spirituality, there's this sense of the inherent perfection of everything and like the depth of sadness and compassion of, of suffering, right? Like that for me, that's another way of framing it. It's like somehow you reach, like you, you cultivate both and thinking. There's so many both ands to put together with every perspective. There's another side to it, right? So it's like you're in this dialectic where there's both and, both and, well, there's this, but then there's this and you can, sort of relativize any perspective and you can always show sort of polarities, right? So there's, there, there's this, um, 
there's this cultivation of both and thinking. And I feel like where you ultimately end up is this really big both and like capital B, capital A that has to do with like the inherent okayness of everything and the developmental evolutionary sort of um, process that we're engaged in, which is fundamentally and necessarily imperfect and involves lots of suffering from different perspectives and angles. And somehow that being and becoming, right? Those two things actually are both fully real. And that's, you know, in some of my other talks, I've sort of talked about the shift from both and thinking to both and feeling. And that's part of what I'm pointing to, right? And I think this is what people like Ken Wilbur are pointing to when they make the shift from second tier to third tier is actually sort of the both and gets bigger, the context gets bigger, the heart space of holding that tension gets bigger. And, you know, the resolution is not found in language or in accentuating any one side or the other. It really is feeling how, yes, like feeling into being, feeling into the okayness and the perfection of everyone and everything ultimately. Like every time you relate to a person, you see how beautiful they are and how unique they are and how sacred they are. And you don't want to change anything about them. You love them unconditionally. And you actually relate to them that way. So they feel that way. They feel like they don't have to change, right? Sounds like a good marriage, right? It's like you actually love somebody or, or, or a relationship with a child. You love them unconditionally. And, you know, every spouse has some stuff to work on, right? And every child has a lot of growing to do. So that, like, that's how you hold it. You hold it like a mother holds a child, right? You hold it like a loving spouse holds a spouse. And that's the both end. It's like, yes, all, every teacher I work with is a perfect, unique expression of, of love. And I want them to feel that. And I'm going to question and challenge their thinking because they're on a path of growth. So that, I mean, that's ultimately how those things are held. That's the spirit within which we have to hold them, which is why for me, it, but that's, that's a big ask in some ways. And I, I get that, you know, it's sort of like, well, yeah, everyone just has to wake up and become a bodhisattva and then, and then we'll have it figured out. But that's the kind of, that's the path. Like that's actually the path we're all on, right? And the more that we see that, the more we can facilitate people being on that path. Because I feel like that is actually the path that everyone is on toward waking up, toward realizing themselves and others as, as beautiful, as perfect. And then creating relationships of solidarity so that we can actually work on the becoming part and the suffering part and the inequities and inequalities. So sorry, that's big frame, but to be, to be more specific, I think too, a way to address it more concretely is part of the post-progressive insight perspective vision is having this bigger historical context of deep time too. So you are whenever in whatever way you can and whenever appropriate, trying to broaden the scope in which people are making sense of the world, which is why, too, one of the questions I raised was like, how do you understand the school in the context of culture at large and all the ways in which the culture wars and politics and economics are completely influencing the culture of every school? And the reason there's, that's important for many reasons, but one of the reasons is you want to be able to see that and keep referring to that larger context beyond the school in a way that illuminates the stakes of the game that we're in right now as a species, right? So the more that we point to things like polarization in politics, as opposed to one side being wrong and one side being right, 
the more we point to like the health of the earth in a way that's not just about like carbon and driving less, but actually about like the rainforest and the water systems and like all the ways in which our consumption is completely complicit. Like the more that we orient to these species wide concerns, I feel like the more we help people get over those more petty and more localized polarities and we help people understand the stakes and there is this urgency. So I think this comes back to your question because it's like, okay, well, we don't want to actually let a traditional school or a mainstream school just stay that way for the next 20 years because 20 years from now, they won't even be living in the same world, right? So there is a fundamental inadequacy to that. So I just, I want to honor that. Yes, I do believe that. So you are really trying to get people to see the bigger picture, whether they're traditional, mainstream, or progressive. There are these overarching concerns that are really relevant for everyone and whatever language games they're playing, whatever values resonate for them, whether it's being like Christ or whether it's being science-based and rational or whether it's digging into the values of like equity, right? If you wanna go traditional, mainstream, progressive, we have to keep orienting to that big picture. And I think when you do that, it puts things like standardized testing in a bigger perspective, right? It puts things like whatever small issue that we're working with at the school in a bigger perspective. and I think it naturally points to the reasons why we have to empower children, the reason why we have to help children align with a deeper purpose for why they're here and not allow children to be socialized in a way where the rewards and punishments of a localized school culture are like the be all end all for them. I don't want children to be hyper-focused on the context of their school, right? They should not, I mean, we want to help as they get to become teenagers. I don't want them to be so stressed out by grades, right? They don't have the energy or capacity to really be feeling like they're figuring out what their purpose is in life and why they're even on this planet and what their role is to play in helping to heal it, right? So if you are working at a school where you're stressing out teenagers because they're really stressed about their grades, you are sucking their energy away from being a custodian of the planet, right? Which means you don't fully understand how important it is that your orientation and your prime directive should be helping kids to be custodians of the planet. And everything should come back to that. Yeah, what, what cues or clues do you have on how to expand the picture from any of the day-to-day minutiae out to that larger steward thing because i really like that i feel one of the ways i've thought about it and occasionally have used this language with others has been to say like you know like on a crazy day when i'm sitting watching like a beautiful sunset and like the birds are chirping and all that sort of stuff sometimes i like notice this feeling of like holy crap there are who knows how many generations of people that came before that like as a giant team kept like just pushing the ball a little bit further in some way and in some way and some people maintained it and some people like, yeah, took it apart a little bit and some people put some things back together. But like we're, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of both giants and literally billions of not giants. (laughs) Like, you know, did a little piece here and there. What was that? Saints and psychopaths, but maybe. <laughs> yeah, saints and psychopaths. And just like casual 
yeah. background and players as well. Yeah. Um, and then I get that sense of like, and you know, we as teachers, you know, like childhood's a pretty precious thing. There's only a few years of it. And we seem to really value and really cherish it. And if I'm going to spend the better part of a year with someone, and possibly more years with them, what's the best way that like, to put it into the negative terms first, like, I don't waste that time in childhood, mm. but rather then flip to the positive of like, how can I be a positive influence in a way that I feel I at least played my part in this lineage of like giving back in some way and hoping that whatever influence I've had encourages this person to like pay it forward for lack of a better word to like mm -hmm. carry on the torch of like making this overall game better for the next people that are coming into it after mm -hmm. you. Cause whether the people before you did it consciously or not, they've done that. And my, Assumption is the more consciously we try and make it better for the next people, mm -hmm. the better that is. That's like a pretty healthy virus <laughs> code to carry on. So, how, yep. yeah, that was a long way of getting around to like, what are your, have there been certain frames, certain ideas, certain wordings that seem to cut through and speak to many mm. people? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's tricky because part of what you said there is an important piece of the puzzle and can easily be taken in the wrong direction, right? Because there's this sense of the value of childhood and parents and educators will find great agreement in terms of the general cherishing and value of, of children and of education and of the growth process. So there's a general level which we can all buy into that. But then there's one direction we can go where it's where it's like, well, we don't want to waste the time, right? So that, that's a danger, that's a tricky one because if we want to maximize this time, right? It's, you can slide into a sort of linear design-like sort of modern mainstream way of thinking where it's like, well, then, you know, it's, well, then we need to figure out, you know, how to, how to maximize this time and then we reduce that to maximizing input or information or we create some sort of backward design process where it's like, okay, if by 12th grade we really want them to be here, then we backwards plan and then we have it figured out every year this is what they need to do and what they need to be. And then you're totally, you're, you're in an industrial model, right? And you're not in an organic natural model. And you're seeing children like, you know, automobiles putting put together on a factory instead of like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, right? So like metaphors and just, the, the background architecture of even how we make sense of basic values like that is really important because you could take that same value or goal of, I want to make the most of this time, right? But then even the word like the most is a quantitative mm -hmm. word so that can kind of lead you in that direction. Whereas like for me, play is like what comes to mind, like understanding the value of play, understanding evolutionary wise, historically wise at every age, like the engagement of human beings in a playful atmosphere and attitude, the engagement of how much more you learn when you're really engaged and liking what you're doing and wanting to do what you're doing, right? If we think of play broadly as you're choosing what you're doing, you're engaged in it, you're having fun doing it, you actually want to do it, you have some freedom and creativity 
and how it unfolds, right? Like that's a spirit in which we actually maximize the developmental potential of any given day or week or year. But I, I have to acknowledge that that like those two different frames of that of that core value, like how do we make the most of childhood? How do we make the most of education? How do we make the most of this year? Like that's two very different directions to go. And there's so many factors, I think, that determine whether one is inclined to go in one direction or the other. Part of our role, um, just as, as conscious people who are trying to think this through and really figure out, gee, if, the, if say those are two choices, which one really is better? And if we start to understand why creating an atmosphere of play and creative exploration and intrinsic motivation and purpose is going to be a much better use of everyone's time um, than that more standardized, structured, industrial model of education, the sort of input banking model of education. If we really see that distinction, we also still need to see like why, or it, it might benefit us to understand a little bit about why that sort of industrial linear approach has become so dominant. Um, and to really speak as honestly and openly against it as consistently as possible with other educators and parents, right? And this is, I'm, I'm part of my work is working with parents and talking about, especially early childhood education, and just continually trying to find new ways to describe and explain why that sort of play-based approach makes sense, right? And it's really about feeling into the, the human experience of being in a community like that and what does it feel like and what's meaningful about being in a learning community like that contrasted with any sort of default um, or an inherited background ideas that they might have about what school is supposed to look like and any anxiety or stress they might have about, oh, will my child be behind if they're not reading by a certain age? Or, you know, there's such a hyper focus on content because that's still the dominant conventional way of thinking. And in some ways that actually brings me to what, one, one distinction in those conversations with parents, one distinction I often make is a simple one. It's not really stage specific, really just between conventional and post-conventional too. And I think it's important. I think that can be a starting point for people to sort of begin to grasp this dialectical relationship between conventional and post-conventional and conventional being, you know, if we're simply teaching children to be successful and to win the game in the world as it is today, then we're not really serving them, right? We need to be helping them to become post-conventional, to really question the way things are because we're oriented toward making things better. So whatever the life world system that we're living in right now, however competitive it is, however worried you are about your child going to a good college and getting a good job, if we can take a backward step and just see all of that as the conventional world and we can acknowledge the problems with that world, you have to have some insight into there are problems with that world. There are things we're trying to fix and make better about that world. What's going to help us really become post-conventional and have a new way of being in the world? And that's sort of an entry point of talking about that loops back to this is why we're trying to raise children in a different kind of environment where we're relating to each other in a non-competitive way, in a more collaborative way. And we're trying to really help them get used to listening to their own intuition and their own inner voice and getting used to refining their alignment with their own path, right? Like how does each person become helped to be in alignment with like what they should be doing, right? Like what are your values as a family? 
And how do your children align with that in a way that they've, they've really naturally taken it on and they, they own it, right? And they're living it. They're not being forced to do it. And they're not becoming accustomed to being told what to do and controlled all the time, which is what will end up happening if you have that more linear industrial model. What you, if that's your goal and that's your model, what you end up with is a bunch of kids being told to do stuff that they don't want to do. And then all the layers of oppression and resistance that come with that sort of educational dynamic, which is really anti-education. Sorry, man, it's a lot. I, <laughs> long, long answers, I apologize. This is all right. I loved your face when you got to the end of that, though. Yeah. There's, well, this is the thing. We, we're talking about things that aren't one thing. It's like any one of our kind of like six or seven questions we started to look into. It's like, I always like the saying, you shake one branch and it moves the whole forest. It's like all of these things are so interconnected. And so like one of the groups, I like that you were mentioning parents and talking to parents. They, t they tend to be a group that to some degree gets overlooked from everybody in the school experience or the role that they have is often important in the school but maybe has a lot more potential that is, that is uh, not fully accessed. But maybe my question is actually bigger than just the parents. It's like, it, the thing that I get when I listen to you now, or when I've listened to you in the past, is that idea of like untapped potential. Mm -hmm. The feeling I have, like the thing that lights up in me the most and perhaps the light on it gets dimmed sometimes in the day-to-day -day minutia of things, is this feeling of like, I feel like with just a few acupuncture points and like possibly a few chiropractic structural changes here, there's like a whole other universe just sitting under the surface mm -hmm. of this thing. Um, and an unknowing of like, I can't articulate what that is, but like I get excited by the idea of like leaning into that. So I'm curious when speaking with parents or with staff or with students, anybody, in what ways do you choose to push towards that unknown emerging future, for lack of a better word, of like a thing that's totally different than the playbook we are at all familiar with. Mm. You're doing long answers, I'm doing long questions. Great, no. <laughs> I love it. No, thank you again for naming that. That's beautiful, that notion of potential. It really is, I hadn't, you know, there is, there is this incredible potential. Like we do wanna tap into that and that is what we should be trying to point to. And I personally believe that that's true. I really, I really think that we are um, a couple acupressure, acupressure, puncture points away from really releasing much more human potential at individual and collective levels. Unfortunately, collectively, it looks like we might need a series of catastrophes and crises to sort of um, create that, that pressure. Um, but it is possible. And that is what we kind of want to keep pointing people toward. And I think that is another thing that cuts through structures, like that core human potential and especially the potential that, pe that parents feel in their children, like everyone can relate to that. At some point, there is a way to pull every parent into tuning in 
to that amazing, awesome, beautiful potential that is in their child. And everybody wants to believe that. And it's important to keep speaking life into that and to use the word and language as a way of refreshing that flame in people because it's there, but it goes dormant and it's hard to keep it alive. It's hard to actually, for, it's hard for people to feel that, uh, the aliveness of that potential in the day-to-day minutiae. It's hard, especially when you're in industrial age educational systems that frankly beat it out of you by forcing you to do stuff that you don't want to do and that doesn't resonate with your core purpose. So, and teachers too, there's millions of teachers who are in educational systems that are not, that are not consciously trying to light that flame in them. But that, that's the meta move. Again, it's not about any particular content or curriculum or idea. It's about nurturing human potential and actually enlivening people to wake up and get in touch with their own potential. What do you want to be doing? You as a teacher, why are you a teacher? What are you doing here? What, what, what is your real core intentionality? How do you bring that to life? How do I, you know, as a colleague or supervisor or whatever, how do I relate to you in a way that's going to help you keep coming back to that and keep asking that question and answering that question for yourself? Because it's one that nobody else can answer for you, right? And we can't, and then the teacher needs to see that they can't answer it for the kids, right? So you get, you get out of that factory model of education, that input model of education, that quantitative reduction of educational value model by tuning back into the subjective and the qualitative and that feeling of, of passion and care. And like, what do you care about? What is your purpose? And yeah, that, that's what we have to come back to. And that should be the explicit goal of the educational process. Like we have to try to reframe and things like play and creativity are only actually um, collateral benefits of being aligned in, in that way, right? Like really the core underneath play and creativity and autonomy is actually this core of like purpose and meaningfulness. Like what's gonna make your life meaningful and allow you to align with your purpose and even just have this sense that that's what's happening. And we need to find a way to come back to that. We really, really, really do in our language. We need to keep coming back to, we are all on a path. We are all here to figure out how to be of service and how to self-actualize, right? So even if it's something as simple as like Maslow's hierarchy, some sort of growth orientation frame that should be holding all educational decisions. Like, like at my school, we say, oh, we hold the child at the center, right? But we don't necessarily always unpack what does it mean to hold the child at the center? We're not, we're not wanting them to stay as they are. We're not wanting to just coddle them and give them what they want, right? What we're actually wanting is for them to self-actualize. And the way that we do that, and I say this to parents too, the insight that we've had at my school is that you foster autonomy and creativity in students by fostering that in teachers, right? You have to have, te- teachers have to have autonomy to model and invoke um, and, and inspire autonomy and creativity in children, right? And that, those are the kind of cultures that we, have to, that we have to develop. So where we started was this idea of like developmental contexts where, for lack of a better word, like you as facilitator, you've kind of in the background have some kind of developmental model through which you're sort of graciously letting go and then like, you know, engaging with people in and that you may or may not make that developmental model explicit i'm curious within your school or when you're talking about like at your school you put the student in the center but 
you have ideals for them to grow and develop. Do you communicate with students or with parents any kind of like a trajectory of growth connected to like the outcomes of a play approach? Mm. That's a great question. I would say we are a progressive school. So and I, I, I'm going to speak more generally. So at, at progressive schools, I've seen this, you know, in, in many progressive schools is so I, I, I can sort of describe what that looks like to me from my developmental perspective and then where I'd want that to go. Like my intention of what I think could be next for progressive schools is maybe a way to look at that. Um, because what I, the way I think that plays out is at a progressive school, especially progressive independent school, there's often some degree of buy-in to like play-based education, especially in early childhood. There's some degree of buy-in to a lot of these ideas that I've been sharing in terms of self-actualization and creativity and each individual student being really unique and special and really trying to help them find their way in life. And then I'd say the sort of uh, the attractor, the cultural attractor in that, in, that, in that system is some combination of progressive values, right? So we're oriented toward equity, we're oriented toward social justice, we're oriented toward making the world a better place, right? So these, these, these basic green values, which are really important. And I think where we're at right now in our, in our civilization, that a, a fairly healthy version of that sort of green progressive value, like meme complex, that's a relatively healthy place to be at right now. And I think, frankly, you know, a lot of the problems of our world would be greatly improved if that was more ubiquitous and if all schools were actually oriented toward helping individual, unique, beautiful students find their path and their way to embodying those values of equity, social justice, you know, making the world a better place, being somewhat awake to the issues with climate and whatnot. So that there is a large degree of buy-in to all of that. Um, but it's not the, the adult, the parents and the educators involved in that process don't necessarily have the kind of developmental framework that you and I have where that process keeps unfolding, right? We don't necessarily have a context that holds that progressive culture in an even broader context and container that would allow an orientation to ongoing growth. Um, so for me, and I, I don't necessarily know how to cultivate that in a culture, but I feel like that is an attractor. Like for someone like myself, and for someone like you asking these questions about post-progressive, like what's happening now is the emergence of a new attractor, right? So now many of us are sort of seeing into the, um, the partialness and like the relative truths of the progressive value structure. And there are downsides. There are sort of, uh, you know, it, it's not a whole and complete and comprehensive worldview. There actually are some kinks in the armor and there are ongoing cultural and relational and ideological problems that are surfacing as manifestations of that progressive sort of value meme architecture. Um, so those of us who are seeing that, you know, now are now opening up this new sort of meta-modern or post-progressive or integral sort of attractor. And we are feeling into how to create cultures that can continue healthy development so that those progressive values are included right? But they're not the be-all, end-all, right? Because one of the issues that relates to what I've said earlier is like, if that's the be-all, end-all, it can easily flip into over-identification with particular content, 
right? So you have to say certain things, right? And this is where we get into the conservative critique of liberal progressive postmodern culture is they might frame it as like political correctness, right? Or virtue signaling, right? Or, or being hyper or almost being like thought police, right? It's like you have to, and there's a sort of, there's human dynamics that manifest at every structure. So whether you're traditional mainstream or progressive, there's still going to be groupthink dynamics going on, right? There's still going to be in-group, out-group tensions. There's still going to be us versus them dynamics, right? And as you transcend and include the progressive value structure, that's what you start to see as clear as day is the ultimate um, inadequacy of identifying with any of those perspectives. So you see the, the deep, inherent, inalienable, unavoidable shortcomings of identifying with the traditional view or the mainstream modern view or the progressive sort of pluralist postmodern view, right? And though these things, you see them structurally, you see them in the general, in the abstract. So that's part of the post-progressive integral metamodern insight is you, you, have a, you have a general abstract understanding of those flaws. So then in relationship, you have a sense of, how, you know, feeling wise, like I'm not, I'm no longer identifying with those progressive values. I, they're not part of my identity that creates a boundary and an us versus them. And then I need to get people to agree. And the children at my school are successful in this paradigm to the degree that they buy into these words and these ideas and this cultural mimetic content, right? That is inherently flawed because then we've lost the open-ended the open-ended process-oriented dynamic, right? I don't want our high schoolers to just all be saying the same things and all be believing the same things and all be towing the line in regard to a narrative around social justice. I want them all to be genuinely thinking, inquiring, questioning, growing, you know, seeing the polarities, taking meta perspectives, asking themselves, you know, what's true and partial about all these different perspectives. So there's a vision for what is post-progressive that is clearly distinct from the progressive. And I'd say um, pretty much all of the non-traditional, um, non-mainstream schools that I've worked at are pretty much at the place where they're mostly locked into um, identity. I think that there's just a common tendency to over-identify with progressive values. And there's always hints and glimmers of transcendent values. And actually, one of the benefits of working at a school like a Quaker school or a Waldorf school, perhaps, is that there's, there are even bigger containers, right? So there actually is a context that is bigger than just postmodern culture. It's some sort of religious, spiritual context, right? And that can facilitate, I think, potentially um, the, the, the likelihood of not being too um, captured by a sort of postmodern or progressive sort of constellation of, of, of identity, right? Because you have this broader thing that you're trying to always refer to and actual practices. So like one of the benefits of my school is the use of silence, right? So the practice of silence, helping children to learn how to spend time in silence every day, where even if a very high percentage of the value content is pretty um, consistent, there's at least still built-in practices where people can be reflective and be thinking, and that can open up the potential for their light to kind of shine through 
and beyond those encased structures of values, even if even if they're pretty um, dense and and uh, almost taken for granted. Does that make sense? There's a lot there, <laughs> but I was following you, and there's. Yeah, there was about seven different things I was going to chime in with little responses, but I felt you kept you kept the ball yeah, rolling well there. I know you said you brought a a slew of notes with you. I'm curious if there's anything that you had felt you wanted to say that you haven't had the opportunity to yet that you would want to bring into this. Yeah, well, no, I was saying before we recorded that I typically don't have notes, and this time I did, but now you can see why. Like, I haven't really used them because just responding to questions is the most organic way. So I'm loving your questions and responding to questions. I mean, I had, in my thoughts, it was like, oh, well, when I'm thinking about the difference between, for instance, progressive and post-progressive, one direction to go would be thinking more cognitively in terms of the difference between systematic cognition and metasystematic cognition. Um, so that would be one way to go. I did want to think about this distinction between cognition and cultural code. And also this notion of downward assimilation, where you start to get a sense of, in whatever, whatever individual group you're working with, just because they're saying something doesn't mean that that's actually the level at which to engage them, because they could just be influenced by their environment. So you really want to decouple, like, where is somebody coming from versus what they're saying? And that makes it a little, and some of the, some of the clunkier models, I think like spiral dynamics, um, or even like early integral theory. It's sort of like, it's too all-inclusive of like people are at a stage or a structure. And even just decoupling cognition from cultural code can be meaningful, but that, that, that does lead to a broader point too, which maybe I'll, I'll go here right now. Sort of using, so, so background thoughts I had was making this distinction between systematic cognition and metasystematic cognition, right? So we can, I can talk more about that if you want to circle back to it. And then related to that decoupling, how complex is someone's sense-making versus what language games are they playing? What words are they regurgitating because of their culture environment, right? And this is really relevant for teenagers. So then a slight tangent here. When you're working with adolescents, you need to understand that nowadays, and this again is related to the relevance of the bigger cultural context and no school being isolated. Pretty much any school operating, I'd say in the West nowadays, is, is in a cultural milieu that is very much, they're getting a lot of progressive values, right? They're getting a lot of exposure to progressive values, um, or what we, we could call sort of green, sort of um, meme, meme structure. Um, but that doesn't mean that they, so, so there's, a, there's an unfolding of understanding that emerged over time through our species, where those values emerged in sort of dialectical relationship to prior values and ideas, right? And the people who actually gave birth to and started initially trying to make sense of these larger frames of sort of problematizing modernity, problematizing linear rationality, right? problematizing the sort of power of like one objective perspective sort of speaking for everyone, right? Like critiques of that led to insights about positionality, insights about um, deconstructing things, right? Insights about sort of cultural relativism. But there's a certain cognitive complexity that one has to go through to really move through those stages and really have a deep appreciation for, for, for like really uh, basically just logical, rational, like scientific aligned thinking. 
but a lot of our adolescents nowadays they're 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 talking like they're postmodern but they haven't gone through modernity cognitively right it's not like they've gone through the stages of like Isaac Newton and the founders of like the western enlightenment and they they've done all that math and they figured all that out and they've done the logic and now they're going to critique it from a higher perspective like they're Foucault or Derrida or Marx or something right like that's that's not what's happening what's happening is they're hearing language and they're using it and they're resonating with it and that's part of their cultural situation and it has to do with their identity right so one of the reasons so it's like just understanding that can help because then it's it's a different relationship to those children it's like okay we're we're in all these words we're in this postmodern context i might also be resonating with these postmodern values i'm also resonating with diversity and equity and multiculturalism and anti-racism those are all really important but i'm still working with a young person who is still going to need help understanding all the layers of thinking and perspectives that sort of lead up to that point right and like it's it's and i don't have an answer for how to do that but even just seeing that that's our challenge nowadays is really tricky cuz like so this is what hansi freinach called downward assimilation is basically you are you're pulling ideas down into your sort of level of sense making and you're trying to make sense of these really complex ideas um but you haven't necessarily gone through the cognitive growth that you need to really make sense of it meta systematically so for so one example of that would be when we're thinking about you know and i kind of don't want to go here but i will just briefly when we're thinking about something like racism the insight that there is some reality to systematic racism right systemic racism there there is this influence that is sort of hard to put your finger on but you can see it operating in different spheres and in different ways and there is a partial reality to that but you can't then reduce everything to that right so you can't just take one sort of systematic view of something and then use that to explain everything right the next move would be meta systematic where you see like there is that but there's also these other systemic pressures that are operating in different ways like there's there's the whole economic system and how that operates and sort of interpenetrates with racism right there's just there is the influence of economics and history on culture and cognition and like understanding neuroscience and just how people are wired to be sort of fundamentally prejudiced and to make stereotypes like that's what minds do that's what all minds do it's not inherently bad or wrong or necessarily a systemic problem that all humans on some level are prejudiced right there's also just this under having a systems view of development itself and seeing that all these things are in a context of well there are different levels of complexity that one can engage any of these ideas having a sense of those stages makes sense right so having some sort of integral or integrated view of how different inter- different systems relate to each other goes beyond simply focusing on systemic racism right but that's a really hard thing to do it's not, you can't just jump there but having that in the background can at least or even having that as an idea having things like that pointed to can help loosen up people's identity with certain content where you can have a young person going on and on about systemic racism and it's not that that's false it's that they maybe can't fully understand it yet and as an adult i don't want to just be like yeah that's right like go go fight the man because they're you know it's like i want to actually help them to just continually increase 
their maturity and their understanding of these really big and complex issues. Yeah, and so, to bring, yes, so go, go ahead. Well, to bring like humility into it. So picture the late 90s, me, long hair teenager, loving System of a Down, loving Rage Against the Machine. I was a lead singer for a new metal rap metal band, yeah. you know, writing my political lyrics and all that kind of stuff, doing my best Zach De La Roca that I possibly mm-hmm. could in a small town in rural Canada. And, uh, you know, at the time, I had done a fair bit of reading and I felt I had fairly advanced political understanding political views, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I was expressing it in rap lyrics of all things. Um, I feel now 20 years on, I would just go back and rip myself a new one. Like I would just, I was so certain at the time that I had a framework of understanding the way the world was working around me. And now I just look back like lovingly, but I just think, man, I didn't, know anything and the few things i thought i knew were these insanely oversimplified fractions of things that i had magnified to fill in the gaps in my understanding of of the way the world actually was and like 20 years on i'm now more like yeah this is i'm probably never gonna get this (laughs) like not in this lifetime like it's hilarious to go from that sense of certainty to uncertainty which brings me to a, a question though in looking at that 20 year gap, when I look at like what were kind of the social issues, what were the political issues, what were the environmental issues at that time versus watching kids of kids or people I know who are now same small town even, growing up same schools even, and watching the like overall cultural center of gravity, presenting them with so much more complexity, like the norm now, is like the VUCA thing, like volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. It's like just the the like starter pack of ideas you need to grapple with now has evolved so much in those 20 years. You started to allude to this earlier. What can our role be in that? And also just what are some of the consequences of that? Mm. The consequence of of that sort of younger version of like self-righteousness? The self-righteousness, but at least I'm saying this has happened. Maybe it hasn't. But it does appear to me that the world that a 17-year-old is entering, 18-year-old is entering now, the base level of complexity seems to have shot up a lot from when that was me 20 years ago. Yeah. And the whole social media infrastructure has changed a lot and is a real big influence. We could try We had to... message boards. That was about as far as things got. Yeah, no, all this stuff, all these questions are so rich. Because, um, yeah, that's... So there's a lot. I mean, and I, I just want to say, too, I'm just... I can totally relate on a personal level. I, I had a similar journey. You know, I was fortunate. So, I mean, there's lots of distinctions we can make. But even just through our own stories might be helpful. I was I was very fortunate to be uh, a sort of postmodern progressive, you know, anti-racist for as long as I can remember, you know, and and um, vibing with those sort of post-conventional, postmodern values for for as long as I can remember. And I just want to say I want to make a clear distinction that that is, for many reasons, 
um, a good thing and preferable to, for instance, say I had been raised in a completely white supremacist family and had grown up uh, total with a lot of, you know, racist ideas and had to kind of either be stuck with that or move through that, right? So it's not, there's not a relativism here either. And it's not being overly critical of that sort of self-righteous, um, ultimately like valuable and beautiful and important values, you know, that, that have really emerged, especially over these last 50 years in terms of questioning the norms of society, in terms of really tuning into some basic ground equality of all people beyond, you know, race and gender. Um, but then we're still, so it's like honoring all that, right? And if, and, and if having, having children grow up in environments where that's not the cultural tractor is a separate set of problems, I would say, too. Like we, we do have, especially in the United States, we have a whole separate set of problems of how to help children and adults who are in cultural context where those values are not shared and maybe even rejected and deny, like even the healthy versions of them, right? That's a whole, we're taking that as a given for the level of this conversation as like, yeah, if you're growing up in a straight up like racist environment, like that's a deep problem and there's a different kind of healing that has to happen there. But even just for something more relevant to us, it's meaningful to point out for a progressive audience that there is a maturation that we can go through. There is a difference between our 20 year old like really self-righteous, angry, like progressive values and like the 40-year-old version of, of just having a bigger container and a bigger context and a more mature relationship to different perspectives and different people and how to cultivate relationships and just, just it's like relativism, but it's sort of, uh, there's just a maturation that can happen there too, right? Um, so I think for us, like it, it's important to reflect on that and then to find ways to, that should influence our relationship to, to children and students where we can have humility and love for that. And it, again, it is back to like the appropriate relationship is the relationship of a parent and a child or a spouse. Like you do love someone unconditionally and it is okay. And it's, it's, it's actually great and amazing and wonderful and important that young high schoolers are like out protesting against racism. Right? Like there is, that is a beautiful expression. But then our 40-year-old selves have to ask the question that you asked, which is what are the downsides of that? What are the dangers? What are the problems? What are the ways that, what are the things that we need to be aware of that they're not necessarily aware of that can help them move through that stage in a way that solidifies those values and allows them to transcend them and include them in the most healthy way possible, right? And to not do damage to others in the process, right? So that, that's really the key question is what are the downsides? And I mean, I think we can see a lot of it playing out right now. And it's, it's, there's a lot of difficult conversations happening out in the world right now around things like identity politics and cancel culture. And I still see mostly, no matter how sophisticated someone's language or thinking is, for the most part, seeing polarities arise and people identifying with one side of those issues or the other. Um, and what's really hard is to not do that, to not get sucked into identifying with one side or the other, to try to see both sides without being relativistic, right? Without reducing them as though each side is necessarily equal, right? So that, that's the move, that's what the mature us, that's, the, that, like, that's what the post-progressive 
sort of mature version needs to do is to hold the both and, but it's not necessary. That doesn't mean both sides are equal, right? It doesn't mean that there's not a real depth to iniquity and racism and suffering and injustice that is coming to the surface that actually needs to come to the surface. And that's part of a broader cultural healing that needs to happen. And we can hold that part of the both and, you know, and hold the other side of the both and, which is seeing the problems with cancel culture and the ways that actually like, and political correctness and language police and thought police and actually demonizing Trump supporters, right? Like we can hold the other side, but we don't equate them either. We might hold like, whoa, this cultural healing that needs to happen in regard to racism is huge and real. And I don't want to do anything to dishonor that. That does not mean that I can't also see cancel culture as toxic and that it's not effective or constructive to be angry and hateful toward white people, especially who are like reacting to that healing that needs to happen in a way that I also see as counterproductive, right? So again, it's holding it. It's holding both sides is the mature version, which is the difference. And the, the danger of the immature version of not holding the other side of just totally being all in about, yeah, you know, anti-racism and this cultural healing or, you know, F the 1%, well, which in some ways is less problematic because more important. Um, but, you know, that, that, that sort of self-righteous, like one-sided view, even if you're, you're so convinced you're on the right side of history and you are actually on the right side of history and that is the direction things are going. And in the future, like, yes, hopefully we will be in a world where we don't have to fight so hard for economic and racial justice. But the danger is it's many levels. One is for yourself. What are you doing to yourself? How are you feeling? How are you growing? What is, how are you facilitating your ongoing emergence into the bodhisattva that you can be and your potential, right? Because you can't, you're actually hurting yourself. And that's, karma is instant. It's not about you're going to suffer later. It's like that anger unchecked and unreflected on and identified with is actually holding you down. It, you're actually blocking the emergence of development as it's trying to move through you through that stage of self-righteousness. So there's that individual problem and a lot of people are getting stuck there, right? It's like people are getting stuck because there's so self-righteousness about how on the right side of history they are. They're not facilitating the further layers unfolding and what all the spiritual traditions teach us and what developmental and transpersonal psychology teaches us is that there are, there are further stages, there are further perspectives, there are deeper and deeper and more mature perspectives to hold. So we wanna facilitate that in the name of education and just human, human purpose. And then culturally we can say, well, it's actually just counterproductive. Like I can see, you can see the backlash, right? And I, I, this is a conversation I find myself happening with progressives who hate Trump and hate Trump supporters, for instance, right? Or, or are so anti-racist that it's like just ready to call anything racist. It's like you, you have to be able to step back and see the, the reaction to that. And you might not actually be facilitating the emergence that you're wanting to facilitate because you're actually not even thinking, if you're not thinking two, three steps ahead, if you're not thinking about how someone is going to respond to you and then renegotiating what you're going to do based on that anticipation, you're not, you're not, you're not thinking strategically. Like you're actually just captured. You're just sucked in and you're captured and you're identified and you're playing out an unconscious role that's causing more conflict in society. And open Facebook, open the news, you see that conflict playing out. People are captured 
by thought complexes and mimetic cultural movements that they're resonating with and identifying with, and they do not have the capacity of consciousness to disembed themselves from that and to be able to see all that playing out right in their, in their view and to be that broader subject that's a witness to that, right? And that's, and then we get into why spiritual practice and meditation are important, right? Because that's actually what helps facilitate that subject-object move where we are actually developing the capacity to hold a broader view and see whatever is happening as an object of awareness um, and, not, and not identifying it. I just keep coming back to that because I see, I see the downside. Like we can see the downsides really clearly and, and it's okay. <laughs> and that's the big, it's like, and, and maybe it has to happen this way and maybe people have to be out on the streets and maybe it's all in service of a greater healing that has to happen. Yeah, maybe it's how we get to having healthier ego development and healthier conceptions of identity. And then like you said, then that also somehow magically has the rug pulled out from underneath it and brings in that balance of like, and what's the witness of this identity? Mm. <laughs> what's the thing that's seeing this identity emerge? I've always found it interesting that that hasn't worked its way into the, at least the mainstream conversation about this yet. Yeah. Not yet, brother, but we're getting there. We're getting there, and we're also facing a situation where bigger crises will mm -hmm. fit us that will force us to recalibrate our priorities, frankly, right? Like, right now... Dude, look at COVID this year. The worldwide educational impact on yeah. that? Dude, if you would have sent me down early February and been like, hey, do you think the entire planet is going to fall into testing out digital learning this year like i wouldn't have taken that bet and if yeah. that's how quickly things can change we talked about acupressure points earlier it's like who knows what's coming that could make such an a further leap into some new arena yeah well i'm not gonna play profit but i think i think we've got some more big things in front of us and i, I think the pandemic is not I don't think the pandemic is, is the most difficult thing we're going to face, maybe even in the next year. Um, Agreed, yeah. So priorities, again, we have to shift our priorities. We have to really reorient toward the collective species-wide, earth-wide priorities. And hopefully we can find some new ground for solidarity across perspectives and memes and conceptual architectures to really again, get more to these root values that cut through those different structures, even, at least in the name of survival. Um, and then, but if we're sort of forced to do that, that could end up being an acupressure point culturally that could maybe facilitate the emergence of sort of letting go a lot of this identitarian baggage. And, you know, there, there's so much just identity... Um, it's, just, it's holding us back, man. Our limited identities are holding us back, right? We have to have broader context for understanding ourselves and, and who we are and how we connect to each other. So you know that movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, that came out a few years back? I feel we should take like a developmental view to this and like make the 40-Year-Old Version and like this as a movie that like looks back on like the 20-Year-Old Versions and then we make a version when we're 60 and look back at ourselves now and like listen to the recording of this. like. Oh, Brad, listen to us. We thought we had a bunch of stuff figured out at that time. What a joke. Like, yeah. Well, one thing we say at my school, which I appreciate, is that the truth 
uh, is continuously revealed, right? And you, you, really, you, you really have to be open to emergence and open to process and really see that things will be revealed. You can't get ahead of yourself. And, and uh, there, there's a, it really speaks to the ultimate complexity of, of reality, not reducing things to linear frames that make you think like you know totally what's going on. Um, and that's, that, that's important too. Everything I said is in that spirit of like, this is trying to make sense of it the best we can and forever reaching into broader vistas of interpretation and, 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 and meaning making. Um, and in that spirit of, of, like you said, humility and, a lot, you know, one last thought too I'd want to share is just, and it, I guess it relates to identity, like just as we don't want to over-identify ourselves with any particular content um, or race or gender for that matter, but also any ideology, we also don't want to reify that identity in others, right? And the big danger of developmental thinking is the reification of structures and, and stages. So I feel like that's something that really does need to be reinforced a lot um, if we're ever, whenever we're referring to developmental structures is we have to, the, mature, the only mature way to hold that is in a way where you're somehow not reifying it in others and you're seeing the fluidity and you're seeing the complexity of people and not, not pigeonholing people and not limiting that potential, right? And seeing that every human being does have this potential to, to break through, to, be, to, to come into contact with their basic humanity and to connect in solidarity with the basic humanity of others. And you can, do, you can make that move and you can connect to other people and really show care and be, um, be the, the change that we need to see in the world whatever your cognitive complexity is, right? Because children can do it. And we can see young children are actually able to step into that and show, and show compassion and empathy. And those, those are the transcendental values that we have to stay focused on and keep reorienting toward and not getting too sucked in with any, any way of thought or value that is overly identified with any particular perspective, right? Keep searching for what are those transcendent values that cut through the different structures that include all the different perspectives that we can all relate to on some, some really heart, heart-based way. Hmm. <laughs> thank you, Brad. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate the conversation and uh, happy to talk again sometime too. If you yeah. Want. So Brendan, there is the chat that I had with Brad a few weeks back. We've had a few opportunities to listen to this, to digest this. And uh, now I guess you and I just kind of want to summarize some of our biggest takeaways and some of the good ideas that Brad brought to the table. We do. Thank you very much for that, Rob. I thought it was a really interesting conversation to listen to as an outsider. But then, bonus, I get to be an insider and give my two cents. Brad clearly knows a lot about the integral stages that we're talking about and the, the different types of schools that we bring up in our weekly conversations, the traditional mainstream progressive. And he was able to give us a lot of context on how we can begin to build a developmental space that works from a developmental kind of mindset into that post-progressive integral and term I love metamodern super cool. I think that would think that would get some people's brains shaking when they try to work out what that meant. But I think some real interesting things I'd like to delve into here if we can give ourselves 30 minutes or so to do that. 
Yeah. So maybe just like, here's a heads up of what you and I are going to talk about. So we want to hit on this idea of human development, because uh, Brad is certainly bringing very similar ideas to the table, but I think from a slightly different perspective than we are. The idea, again, of the purpose of a school education and his emphasis on relationship. And then really, I think the biggest idea that I've taken from listening to Brad's talk was just that idea of the embodying of that post-progressive value and the idea of the emergent values of a post-progressive value. And then um, also being able to look back at the previous values and like what is the kind of healthy version of each that we want to include, including a critique of the progressive value, that uh, inclusion value, and what do we want to keep from it? So yeah, let's dive into the human development side. We're coming at it a little bit more from the integral background or the spiral dynamics background. Brad, I know from my two conversations with him, is a big fan of the author Hansi Freinach, who uh, wrote the book, The Listening Society, which lays out this idea of metamodern, which I would say if, if we're looking at the nuts and bolts, yes, is different than integral. But I think overall, they they look more similar than different. Maybe Brad might disagree, but I would say overall, they look more similar than different in their idea of sort of a stage conception of how humans develop, how societies develop, this kind of a thing. So uh, yeah, what did you take from the the human development component of this talk. I think what what Brad was saying in a lot of in a lot of places were things that we think but don't say too often. And so one of the things I, I really enjoyed was when he said we have to kind of let go of oversimplified models of understanding human behavior. We often say like the schools that we're in, there's no way you'll ever find one that's just progressive or just mainstream or just traditional. And even inside every single person in that school, there is a mixture of these values. And we can't oversimplify them. We are trying to give, I guess, heuristics and rules of thumb to identify what some of these value systems might look like. But we have to understand that, you know, the the, the, the phrase, the map is not the territory is really key. And so the, what I, one quote, uh, one thing he said about truth being unpredictable and reality being an emergent process. None of this happened before. We've got no idea where it's going. And so it's in our best interest not to put everything in very tight, rigid boxes. Um, and he's, he he encouraged us to let go and engage. And I think we'll get to this a little bit later when we talk about how we have differences about how, about approaching, moving schools or identifying the values of schools and working with schools to, um, to move forward in a direction that's best for them. I think this is really this is really important. We have different views on how to do that, which is really interesting. But what we do agree on is that this is an unpredictable and very complex system. And the other thing is that he identified that tension between that he called it the inherent okayness or perfection of everything. You are okay and even perfect as you are. However, there is an imperfect suffering inside us all and around us all as we evolve into becoming something different. And there's a tension between those two things. These are all things that kind of go around the back of our head when we're talking about schools, but we rarely name them. So kudos to you and Brad for bringing those out into the light and allowing us to talk about them. How about you, Rob, in terms of development and maybe moving on to the next one about the purpose of school and education? Was there anything that leapt out at you? Yeah, I think what I liked about Brad's is I think, again, we're, we're coming to a lot of the same end points, but I think 
maybe taking different paths to get there. And I think the path you and I have taken so far on the podcast has been a much more perhaps mind-based path. It's been thinking and analysis and deduction and clarifying that has kind of brought us to our general map of what's the best way to interact with each other and our communities to, to pursue health and growth. And I think Brad's was much more coming from the heart of like, no, if you start with the relationships and with the people, how do you create the context and the relationship around that? But yeah, I think he seemed to have that idea of there are the developmental stages, but those are running in the background. They're not in the forefront. And I think maybe it's just the reverse for us. We've kind of been saying, okay, for us so far, we very much put the, the this kind of model first and then attempting to use that to then relate with people through perhaps. So maybe I'm using this imagery too much, but I kind of feel like a lot of Brad's message almost feels like the, the yin to the yang or like the converse concave image of each other. We're, we're just kind of coming at it from very different places, but essentially having a lot of the same overlapping ideas. And for me, he brought up something that I feel is just, well, not that I feel, this has actually been a reoccurring theme that's emerged in about four or five conversations I've had with sort of cutting edge educators recently, which is just this idea that education should be helping us to connect with something larger than yourself on the individual level. And education should also be helping you to connect with something larger than yourself or rather larger than ourselves on a collective level. And I think he said that in a few different ways. And I think, you know, a lot of the things he hinted at were like, you know, the very healthy aspects um, or rather the healthy sides of this kind of green inclusion value of really helping children to align with their deep purpose, their interests, um, you know, wanting to bring in this sort of more organic models, not the industrial kind of previous approaches to education and, and really kind of like breathe some life into our time spent with each other in community, in schools, and, you know, relate to you in a way that helps you to find answers for yourself so that the school is not there to provide answers for kids, but to rather like ignite that spark within them and to like, you know, kind of give you like, um, like both I'm getting the imagery of like a garden to help you grow and mature and be as ripe as you can be for when you leave the school phase of your life to enter the quote kind of post school phase of your life. Um, so yeah, and, and for me, it seems like he's really trying to bring something on, he's emphasizing bringing something online which I would argue comes online from the, the green and beyond, from that inclusion value into the integration value of connecting you to something larger than yourself and ourselves. And I would argue that the more orange and previous approaches to schools, so the mainstream and the traditional approaches to school, tend to kind of create this idea that like the universe as it is in the school is kind of of utmost importance, of is of utmost importance. And perhaps it becomes a walled garden and, and a little bit detached from the actual world around it. And I think Brad's emphasis is the purpose of school is to connect children to the world that is already very much around them and not have that arbitrary borderline of school and the world outside of school, but to have those influences acknowledged and celebrated and fostered and continued so that when you leave school, you feel part of a world, or at least that's what I took from, from what I heard him say. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there. And I agree with essentially what you're saying there, Robin. There's a few places where I think because we've approached our way to look at schools more analytically and more from the inside heading out, it feels that when we meet someone like Brad, 
God who has approached it more from the heart, from building, from from starting with individual relationships and from looking at the wider context and moving in. Yeah, the yin yang were almost, you know, how do we bring these two together? Because if the post progressive is about integrating these different mindsets, how do we bring these two different approaches together so that we can work with a school to not only look at it from inside the walled garden and inside what the current school community and school body is and does and where they want to go but how does that relate and play off against the wider world and how do we and this is something I need to ask myself because I'm more analytical I would say than heartfelt in many of my interactions I'm not heartless Rob don't get me wrong um but I really like the way that Brad kept coming back to the idea of relationships being the primary and we know this and it happens in our day-to-day interactions but in the show we don't necessarily talk about those relationships too much they're in all of our discussions but we're talking about maybe what the school how it how the school acts how the systems of the school interact even what the culture is and maybe because we're talking in the abstract and not talking about individual schools and individual people it makes it a little bit more difficult but focusing on the healthy relationships because i know when we talk about how we work inside our own schools it's all about our relationships with people it's all about how we interact with the people we work with and I'd like to be saying that more in the podcast bringing that more in and Brad's main point on this was being in a relationship with people identifying their own pressures helping them to see what those pressures are and meeting them at the stage they're at and the stage you're at and having some mediation between the two of you so that you can continue developing and unfolding the world around you so it really alludes illuminating and it's almost when you've got your coin heads up and someone just says hey you know there's a whole other side of this coin and it's just as it's just as relevant it's just as important and maybe you're not looking at it quite as much as you should yeah you and i we've taken the quadrants idea from integral theory and we've reformatted it specifically for our context and we called the eight aspects we went through that in episode 50 in detail and our eight aspects are like the beliefs and the experiences or rather beliefs and reactions of the individuals. We can look at the um, resources and activities in a school. We can look at the environment and the systems in a school. And we can look at the communities and culture. And of course, relationship is embedded in that idea of community and culture. And I think for being analytical, we would say that all of those eight aspects are equally relevant. Because if you overlook one of them, then there is some kind of detriment to your school. However, at the end of the day, if I had to prioritize one one of them, I would prioritize relationships because regardless of how strong your systems are, regardless of how strong your actions are, the best resources, at the end of the day, it's that human to human connection. It's that human to human connection where our entire model has the potential to completely fall apart more so than any of those other eight aspects. So although I don't want to prioritize it, I think at the end of the day, we are humans. And when you put humans together, it is is the quality of relationships probably more than any of those other eight aspects or seven or six aspects in this case that ends up having the largest influence. So I do think Brad's emphasis on relationships was really key. And that's probably something we need to or would benefit from integrating more in our narrative moving forward. Yeah. So one of the other real big points that, that you mentioned a little earlier that Brad came back to was about embodied 
studying the post-progressive and the integration value. So basically, we were saying that the that although we try to give the traditional mainstream and progressive their dues and say, you know, there's a place for them and each of them has a partial truth and something to bring. Underneath it all, we kind of do feel that not none of them by themselves is enough really for life in the 21st century. Any kid that's growing up is going to need all of these or be able to at least access parts of all of these systems. But at the same time, there's a tension where you can't force development. So we're saying what we really want is you to be able to access all of these value systems and utilize them all like a tool belt, but we don't know how to make this happen. We can't make you move through these through this quicker. And so there's a tension there that was one of them. But his, Brad's kind of approach to that was, again, to try to find things that cut through all of the value systems. So you're not trying to push people onto the next stage or to a different stage when they're not ready for it and when it doesn't bring meaning to their life. Better to try to find truths that cut through all value systems. And you got into a bit of a talk about how relationships just the word, the concept of relationship, the concept of creativity or the concept of responsibility, these huge concepts that cut across all value systems. Now that brings with it its own tension because they're open to different interpretations, but at least it helps you to begin conversations because I think what Brad was saying is don't play language games and try to talk to traditional, traditionally minded schools like traditionalists. You still have to speak honestly from your heart, but speak in a way that there's a truth that both you and a person from another value system might be able to understand and kind of connect on. Yeah, I seem to always come back to this idea of like, how do you digest or deal with conflicting ideas about what to do in school or what's best? And this notion of acknowledging the different value systems, I think has been really helpful and important. And I think, you know, being able to do this and talking about embodying the post-progressive value system, you know, I think it has its own trajectory. You don't just instantly like the next day you can do it. Oh, I heard about it. I can do this. I think for myself, and I'd still say I'm very much in like an awkward puberty phase of this. It's like, at first I heard about it. And then it was a very mental thing of like, oh, how would someone who really gets someone else's value system that is different than theirs interact? And I certainly, I would accuse myself of having played these language games as pointed out by Brad, but it's kind of like, maybe that is what you do to practice the skill (laughs) and get a little bit better at it. And then over time, lose this mental strategy of it and just have it a little bit more embodied and like actually sunk into your heart of, okay, yeah, how do I also bring in my own authenticity into this? And I think to some degree, at least that's been my journey is to move from the kind of predictive, hey, I want to act as though I'm going to fake it until I make it kind of thing to switching into more like, no, just being honest right now. Where am I at? How am I? How am I with this person? How am I with this person's idea? and not putting those language games of trying to speak the code of another value system at the forefront, but rather just how do I speak with this other human being in the most meaningful way for both of us and setting that as my intention. Yeah, and that brings us again back to relationships and absolutely how they are key to moving ourselves forward, moving the people we work with forward. But what Brad was pushing was do it authentically by embodying it. And so I think this was his other, one of his other big points 
challenge that he feels you know he feels that that mature integration of of the of that post progressive value is like, as you mentioned having it like an operating system running in the background that informs how we relate to people and how we embody things and it maybe it's actually when we bring it explicitly to people and say are you traditional or are you mainstream there may be a way that that can get in the way of people thinking uh, it could set it could uh, put them on the defensive oh are these three different is one better than the other is one better than another uh, which one am i do i have to get to the best stage and uh, can can lead to those language games or just straight up yeah faking that you're one value system when you're another just to be to, just to be able to fit in and so i do feel there's a danger in that if you make the value systems explicit however we have approached it by doing that way and, and saying like here are the values and so once again in my mind after listening was like i don't think we're wrong for doing that and i certainly don't think brad's wrong for suggesting that we start with the relationships and work out from there in an authentic way but how do we bring these two together how do we how do we wisely choose when to employ these uh, terms because i think we've spoken to educators in the past who have decided to be explicit with the value systems i think both armin and chris at the millennium at the millennium school uh, did talk uh, like uh, similar to how we're doing as using them as a framework for thought um and i'm sure there are contexts where it's absolutely appropriate and it's the hard thing for us will be to decide when and how it's appropriate to work with people and bring the terminology in and bring that framework in without it getting in the way of that authentic relationship it's just made everything it's just made everything 10 times more difficult <laughs> Well, it's pointing out our own kind of desire to want to have a one size fits all approach to this, right? Like that's, it's pointing out our blind spot, like, oh, everyone else is partially correct, but also a little bit wrong because they're always trying to use a one size fits all approach. We're not doing that because we have a one size fits all approach that sees how everybody uses a one size fits all approach. Oh, sweet irony. What I do like though, in Brad's conception of this is that idea of obviously relationships are paramount, but relationships alone, I think, from what I took from what he said, aren't necessarily enough. I think you also need to create the culture, the container, the context where the healthy relationships he's talking about can happen. So he talked about having, you know, whether it's meeting rules or agreements, norms set out so that you do have a context that allows for that emergence. Having a context, a container where those partial truths can coexist and you get the both and mentality. And I think that is a really key piece. And I think that's probably a next step for you and I is to like, look at how do you create the healthiest context for communities and cultures to allow for their babies of their value to be expressed best? Because certain cultures and climates may not allow for these relationships, especially if you're attempting to have these very different value systems coexist. You need to have some ground rules, I think, going in that foster that rather than just hoping you will find a way. And Brad gave a few hints. And if we're, he expressed that he'd be up for another chat with us. And I'd really like to follow up a little bit more with him on that of like, yeah, give me a few more of these specifics of what helps to really foster that context, that developmentally potent context. Yeah, I think biggest, biggest takeaway for me is that idea that we're trying to build a developmental context. Having Finally, putting that into words, I think just clicked a whole bunch of things into 
into into place. At its very core, what we're trying to do is inside the schools we work at and in school inside schools we work with, building, helping communities build a developmental context. And we ask the question, you ask the question, what happens when you leave that room? And and Brad, you know, hits it right, right on the nose. If you've built that developmental context, it will continue. And if you haven't, it will fall apart quickly. And I think that is my biggest takeaway. But I want to come to another part that was that really got me thinking as well, which is this idea of uh, separating cultural code from complexity. And I think in this tense, what what a synonym for complexity was just the the like embodied value or your interior values, your your mindset, and code being your exterior language and maybe even your actions. And so you know we might meet a person who is using a lot of progressive language, uh, maybe even acting in some progressive ways. But when you dig down and have conversations and look at the opinions and values and solutions that are actually underpinning everything and their internal dialogue, it may be coming from a more mainstream or even a traditional background. And so there's a really key and uh, kind of mind-blowing idea for me. Revolutionary in my mind. I'm like, whoa, yeah. And this person could be talking a traditional game, but actually be way more mainstream on on the inside when you actually get to know them. And of course, of course, that's true. <laughs> you know, we encounter that every day, but that for me was it was a, a super helpful and super interesting perspective. Yeah. And again, I think this comes back to like so many of the conversations that I've had in education, which is you can talk to two educators who might agree on the same exterior action or exterior objective. And then you keep asking a few why, rounds of why, and you realize they've come to it for completely different reasons. And I think that's not exclusive to school. I think that's a, a human faculty of ours that you can get a, a large group of people supporting an action, but potentially for completely different reasons. And I think, yeah, you know, I, I still think that schools have an overall value that maybe is governing the culture more or less. And the people within it may be coming from a different value system than that, but they might at least be able to interpret the school's values, the school's code rather, that external code of the school in their own internal, own internal way that is that makes it meaningful for them. And I think this is an interesting idea that, yeah, those codes can be accessed by a different value system and still made meaningful. And, you know, maybe that's a, a good cautionary tale for you and I that you can't take everything at face value at first. We go into a school, we, we look at the system, we look at the culture, we look at the actions. There is that real importance of asking why, why, why again and again to get to some of those those upper left aspects of the beliefs and the reactions of the individuals that aren't necessarily obvious when you only look at the that exterior code and those words or those actions. What I, what I find kind of fascinating was that there is it also an implication that on some level uh, you may not know. You, you may be talking the code of the culture you live in and, and actually believe that this is your culture and actually believe this is where you're coming from until you stop and cognitively think if you're actually completely in alignment with the solutions and opinions and values that you're espousing and that you're living and you know maybe this this journey would then lead you to cognitive dissonances where you're like oh I'm saying this but actually you know maybe I'm saying it on some level because I want to fit in with the culture but I maybe on some level I kind of thought I believe this I thought this was where I should be going and the more I consider my own interiors I'm like hmm actually I do disagree with some of the words I'm I'm speaking and you talked about when you were younger and you would as 
suppose, freedom from the suppression of, of the individual and so on, you know, very noble aims, absolutely. But you but you now look back on that and say they were reg- relatively uninformed and I, I absolutely, I, I, I'm glad that there were far few video <laughs> videos around 25, 30 years ago because at the time, sure, I felt those kind of, um, I felt that those opinions were well thought out and honest and in line with what was around, but I was probably, I was, I was definitely swayed heavily by the the cultural context I was in and I'd like to think now I've had a little bit more time to decompress and think things through and maybe are speaking a little bit more authentically um so that yeah the code versus complexity as, as Brad brought it is boom yeah mind-blowing and it's going to take me a, a, a fur while to get my head around the the depth of that idea but it was a it's a beautiful idea yeah so in in us wrapping up now if we were to have another chat with Brad what would you like to dive in deeper with him what threads would you want to follow up because thanks to the miracle that is the internet Brad and I were able to connect and have a conversation sadly when you have someone in North America someone in Europe and someone in Japan just the way the math of the time zones works out someone always has to be in bed it uh, it would have wrecked life in the O'Leary house to have you join the call oh. but if you're on the next one and maybe I'm not there or we have another chance to chat with Brad what would you want to follow up on with him I would really like to to have more examples of how within his own school he's embodying it and again it gets tricky because first of all it's contextual and second of all you're talking about real people's lives so it's a little bit difficult to talk about that and that's why we don't do it too much on the show we we teach every day right and we have so many stories that we share off the podcast that would be so perfect and we have to kind of be careful to respect the people we we work with and live with I'd like to get uh, more of of how I can embody these post-progressive value more probably through his examples and you won't be surprised to hear that I want to talk more about code versus complexity and the intricacies of that and how it affects uh, our relationships and interactions with schools that we are um, working with and in our own educational lives um yeah what about you Rob if you had to follow up with a couple of zingers what would you uh, what would you ask Brad yeah I think those kind of two areas that I think you've highlighted there and I think the one other one I would want to follow up is even we touched on it through it throughout our talk but just the idea of like okay but walk me through a day a week a month a year in your school when this is you know in your eyes being done the best what what do we see some yeah some case studies some examples few anecdotes those kinds of things i think for me looking at that relational side i think that would help flesh it out for me a little bit more of just like yeah what what, what is it well here's my reactions and beliefs bias coming in but it's like what is it like to be there paint me a picture i want to feel that and then be able to bring some essence of that into my interactions and i think the very last thing i i, I want to delve into it are those couple of points where we come at it from a different perspective and dig a little bit more into how can we still analyze a school and still make that framework explicit while at the same time focusing heavily on relationship and building developmental communities that take into account the wider world as its context so they're not really cognitive dissonances they're just two different approaches that I would like to find out more how they how they integrate um yeah yeah and part of me would love to just unnecessarily up the heat and just say Brad call us out speak your mind fully where do you think we're full of crap do you have do you have the boxing gloves on oh la la like to to go after 
address. Didn't seem that there was, but it's yeah. uh, it was really nice to be able to share our episode 50 with Brad for him to take the time to listen to it. Um, we had a few pre-conversations through Messenger with him to kind of get ready for it. So we really appreciate him taking the time to to really toy with our ideas and, and to share feedback and reflections because, um, yeah, anywhere that there are some of those conflicts or, or further questioning that you and I need to look at, I think it only helps to make what we're doing stronger. And I think that's valuable because our larger aim is to better serve communities, systems, individuals to have a healthier expression of their current value, to be more humane, to make our time here while we're here richer. And to, like we said, you know, we stand on the, what do we say? Saints and sociopaths or something like that. I believe you said standing on the shoulders of literally billions of non-giants, which was, which was by far my favorite line in the whole interview. And as well that, that it's like, yeah, to feel that we've in that lineage of a billion non-giants have at least made an attempt to help while we were here as best as we could. Agreed. A very good summation. And I hope we get the chance to talk to, to Brad again. And uh, big thanks for him taking the time. Uh, really interesting ideas and um, super nice chap too. All right. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Rob.